Welcome to TalkCast audio-only listeners. This is not a standard episode. It's an episode already released on YouTube, but without this preamble, which is here to tell you two things. Firstly, that this episode is me reading a Scientific American article, and part of an article from the journal Nature. Now, that may sound boring, but as it turns out, this episode has generated quite a bit more interest than my usual ones, for reasons that will become apparent as you listen through it. Whatever the case, as I am reading the article, if you're merely listening, it might get confusing, precisely because on the YouTube version, I have the article up there for you to read along to, and because I did this episode in more of a hurry than my usual more prepared episodes, the reading is sometimes a bit faster than I should have done, and even somewhat muted in places. So that's the first thing. If it gets annoying hearing me read these articles without the visual cues, you might prefer YouTube. The other reason this preamble is here is just to say, for whatever reason, some people, not many, just a minority, don't like all of what I say. Which to me is a little strange because I am essentially arguing a few things that I think are reasonably uncontroversial. The first of which is that I don't think it's the business of science magazines, let alone science journals, to take strongly political and economic positions on things. I think it is to the detriment of not merely their reputation and good standing, but to their ability to be objective on matters where there is a dispute. This brings into question their stance on matter scientific. The problems with peer review and journals and scientific communication already run deep. Some of these issues include uh, poor communication, confused explanations, bias and groupthink, and that is within science. So if these publications move on to matters outside science, how much more worse will that problem become? But the main reason people object to my remarks here seems to be that I express concerns about the opinions expressed by the writers of these articles. Those writers are, ostensibly, scientists. As I will say early on, economics is just as much a domain of expertise as any area of science. But it is not science. It's economics. Which means human creativity... Human decision-making has a strong effect on the outcomes in that field. This is less like, say, physics or chemistry, where people's choices will not change the fact that if you add an acid to a base, you will get a salt and water. Or if you drop a large metal sphere near the surface of the Earth, it will accelerate towards the Earth at 9.8 metres per second per second. These things, governed by laws of nature, are largely independent of what people choose to do. But economics, like psychology is a domain where the very outcome depends upon the choices people make. It's unpredictable inherently. The outcome does depend on what people choose to do. What people choose to do is the whole game in town. And because of this, in both domains, I argue that people be free to be creative. So in matters psychological, mental health, so to speak, of the individuals is maximised when people are not being coerced. In economics, and this is the sticking point, maximum flourishing or productivity or wealth creation, whatever you want to call it, happens precisely when coercion is extracted out of the system and people are free to choose solutions or create new solutions themselves. That is optimism. The idea that people can indeed solve problems and the more people that are free to solve their problems, the more they will freely cooperate and prepare for the unknown by creating more knowledge. The problems we know about now are but a tiny sliver of what is yet to come, the infinite unknown. And the only way to prepare for the infinite unknown is to create knowledge now and generate wealth now to help ensure we do not go the way of every other civilization that has ever been, but now is not. All those extinct civilizations did the same thing. Ultimately, they fell into stasis. They could not solve a problem that they were confronted with. One modern incarnation of the term stasis is sustainable. Now, they're not precisely identical. And in a few previous episodes, see episodes 51, 52, 54, and 56, for more on this, all the episodes titled Unsustainable in Various Parts, I explain the deep dichotomy, even a kind of paradox, at the heart of that term, sustainable. It means conflicting things. There is confusion over the term, as I try to elucidate. If you have the book, The Beginning of Infinity, I refer you to page 441, where David tells us the meaning of sustain, and I'll quote, quote, sustain. The term has almost two opposite, but often confused meanings, to provide someone with what they need and to prevent things from changing, end quote. And I think that's quite right. 
Whatever the case, as will become apparent, the articles I refer to are very keen on sustainability without properly explaining what they mean by it. As I get towards the end of the articles, I explain what I think are some of the motivations for so-called environmentalism, what these motivations are from a philosophical and political perspective. These stand in contrast to the vision of our situation presented in optimistic circles, such as outlined in The Beginning of Infinity. But all of that is quite unpopular, I realise. The zeitgeist right now is doom and gloom, and that calls for doomy and gloomy political movements, and, as worse, economic prescriptions. You may not agree with what I say herein, but I'll just appeal to your willingness to hear the other side if you don't. If you already do, then enjoy me going off about what I think is a bad turn for scientists and scientific journals demonstrating their ignorance on matters economic and optimistic and epistemology and resources. <laughs> All right, on to the episode. Hello, welcome to TalkCast. This is not a new look for me. I'm just doing a very quick piece to camera, I suppose, a little vlog about an article that was in the Scientific American a couple of days ago. I've only just read it, and I just thought I'd respond off the cuff rather than preparing anything lengthy about it. So let's just read through it and see what we think. Okay, so here's the article. It's by a couple of people down here, written June 20th, 2021. And it's called The Delusion of Infinite Economic Growth. So, delusion, uh, that automatically implies some kind of psychological disorder. So, they're presuming that this is not, the, the idea of infinite economic growth, is not something that might be argued for from a scientific standpoint, or from an economic standpoint, or any kind of objective standpoint, but rather it's some kind of mental malady. So here's our first problem. Now, who are the two people that are writing this? Now, now we can't judge people based upon their backgrounds, but these two people happen to be physicists. And we can go to the end of the article to find out that one of them happens to be a climate physicist, and works in meteorology, and another one is a professor of physics working on transdisciplinary climate pedagogy. So I guess that means something to the effect of teaching climate science. Okay, so anyway, whatever the case, they're both physicists. Now, the thing is that there is such a thing as expertise. And no doubt these two people are experts in physics. How does that qualify them to be experts in economics or financial matters. Now, I'm not an expert and do not pretend to be an expert in economics or in financial matters, but I do recognize that there is such a thing as expertise in this area. And so I've taken time to read economists like Thomas Sowell, to listen to financial experts like Euron Brook and various other people. And so I've learned over time that people are pining off the cuff about economic matters uh, seem just as silly sometimes as people who have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of physics but send prominent physicists their ideas for how to improve upon Einstein, even though their background might be civil engineering or no science at all, but they think that they can disprove Einstein. Many physicists know this feeling. This is the sense that I got as I read this article. It read to me like cranks. It read to me kind of like people who know absolutely nothing whatsoever about economics or the arguments for infinite economic growth. And I know that the arguments for infinite economic growth are not made very often. There's very few of us who do make this. Even people who are against strange socialist Marxist tribal ideas, ancient tribal ideas, even those ostensibly on our side in the battle of ideas, don't think that something like literally infinite growth is possible. That growth can just continue off into the infinite future. Okay, but let's just read through, okay? I won't spend too long ranting on this, but I just thought it'd be informative to read through it paragraph by paragraph and see where the errors are, the philosophical errors, the epistemological errors. 
So they begin. Even sustainable technologies such as electric vehicles and wind turbines face unbreachable physical limits and exact grave environmental costs. Well, of course they're going, yes, so um, immediately, yes, of course there's going to be physical limits on technologies. Um, grave environmental costs, well, there's a grave environmental costs for not embrace, embracing the latest technologies. We need to have technology in order to protect ourselves from the environment, a point I've made over and over again. Uh, there, is, there is pollution out there that is forever trying to get into our waterways. The, the natural world is just a polluted sphere of germs and viruses and chemicals that are not good for us. And so that's why we need filtration. That's why we need antiseptics. That's why we need antivirals and vaccines. The, these things constitute pollutants in the environment that are dangerous for living organisms, and especially for us. And it is interesting, of course, we can immediately see here that even the environmentalists are warring amongst themselves. So, you know, uh, no true Scotsman this is, you know, uh, that, that, that they're having a go at people on their own side. So if you think that you're doing good by embracing electric vehicles and you think you're doing good by embracing green energy, well, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. Well, how can you be better? How can you be more pure? The electric vehicle, EV, has become one of the great modern symbols of a world awakened to the profound challenges of unsustainability and climate change. So much so that we may well imagine that Deep Thought's answer today to life, the universe and everything might plausibly be EV. But as Douglas Adams would surely have asked, if electric vehicles are the answer, what is the question? Okay, I'm kind of, I'm kind of thinking at this point that, you know, maybe it's, this article is written by the fossil fuel industry. Who knows? Um, let's keep going. Let us imagine the perfect EV. Solar-powered, efficient, reliable and affordable. But is it sustainable? EVs powered by renewable energy may help reduce the carbon footprint of transport, yet the measure of sustainability is not merely the carbon footprint, but the material footprint, the aggregate quantity of biomass, metal ores, construction, minerals and fossil fuels used during production and consumption of a product. The approximate metric tonne weight of an electric vehicle constitutes materials such as metals, including rare earths, plastics, glass and rubber. Therefore, a global spike in the demand for EVs would drive an increased demand for each of these minerals. End quote. Of course... Of course, and isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't it wonderful that we have the knowledge to turn those otherwise completely useless resources, metal ores, uh, biomass, uh, uh, oil, into this amazing thing, this, this vehicle uh, powered by electricity that can accelerate faster than you know, usually combustion vehicles of the same, the same kind. The idea of sustainable, they mention sustainable, they're going to keep mentioning sustainable. Let's just recall this idea of sustainability as explained in the beginning of infinity. Now, sustainable means, in one sense, to keep things the same, to, to ensure that change doesn't happen over time. You just sustain something so it's the same day after day after day. And if you can't do that, then of course, if the thing doesn't remain the same day after day after day, then it's not sustainable. But we, people, cannot possibly remain the same day after day after day. We want to make progress. We want to solve our problems. The world is not going to remain the same. The world is not sustainable. So the other meaning of sustainable is, of course, to provide what something needs, to sustain it, to keep it going. What we need, what we need, what we humans need is constant change. So this is why there's this weird paradox within the meaning of the word there. On the one hand, keep things, keep things the same the day after day after day. But the very thing that we need is not to keep things the same day after day after day. And indeed, not every other animal, by the way, can't remain the same day after day after day because the environment changes. The environment necessarily changes. The universe is in flux. It's changing all the time. Eventually... The asteroid will be coming, or the equivalent of an asteroid, a virus or something else, something unknown at the moment. And that situation won't be sustainable. But I think these people, these, these pessimistic, anti-technology people, these people who are against the use, let's just say exploitation of resources, they are for the extinction of people. They think people are bad. They think people are destroying 
the planet. And nothing is further from the truth. We're trying to actually keep the planet going so it's worth living in. Because the planet is not caring. If, if it had a will at all, if you, were to, if you were to ascribe a will to the planet, it's trying to destroy itself and to destroy all of the other species on it. After all, it's cooling down. It's invariably cooling down. The, the center of the earth is cooling down. It's becoming geologically less active over time. And meanwhile, the sun is getting hotter. So it, it's becoming more and more hostile over time to the life that exists here right now, as it always has. It has periodically just caused the extinction of massive species over and over again. The planet, the planet is not a friendly place. We have to make it. We have to eke out our existence on here. Okay, let's keep going. Every stage of the life cycle of any manufactured product exacts environmental costs, habitat destruction, biodiversity loss and pollution, including carbon emissions from the extraction of raw materials, manufacturing, construction through to disposal. Thus, it is the increasing global material footprint that is fundamentally the reason for the twin climate ecological crises. Okay, so pausing there, there's not a climate or ecological crisis. Neither of those things are true. Um, if anything, both the climate and ecology is in a better position than it ever has been throughout the geological history of the Earth, because, precisely because people are here solving the problems for it. There are just so many people on this planet now concerned about the climate that they are doing everything they can in order to sustain the climate at present levels, as if, as if that's a good thing. Knowing full well that the climate has changed over time via natural processes, now that we are here, however, we should want to keep the climate in a state that is suitable for us. And often to the infinite future, we should hope to have a climate that is rather like our own climate inside of our houses. I've got climate control inside of my house. I can turn the temperature down when I want and turn the temperature up when I want. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do that locally in certain places? Turn the temperature up where we want to um, have crops growing more efficiently and turn the temperature down in places where we'd like to go snow skiing, for example. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's the kind of climate I would like to sustain and to control. As for ecological crises, uh, when hasn't there been this ecological crisis? Uh, people are solving these things. Uh, all of those things, biodiversity loss. How much biodiversity loss would there be without people trying to create the knowledge in order to save these animals and plants. All of these so-called problems, by the way, are simply the result of enacting solutions to far worse problems, far worse problems. Insofar as you think that carbon emissions are a problem, the problem that existed prior to any kind of carbon emissions from a man-made factory, car, coal-fired power station, etc., etc., that problem was the problem of, of surviving without electricity, the comforts of a fossil fuel industry that provide housing and clothing and all of that stuff. The problem of not being able to get from here to there fast enough. The problem of not being able to cook your food efficiently. The problem of not being able to feed all the people on the planet. So we solved those problems. More or less, okay? We're 99% of the way there, okay? It used to be the case that, you know, whatever, I don't know, 90% of people were starving. Then it went to 50%. Then it went to 30 And now we've got about, uh, I think at most, we could find 1% of people on this planet starving, if that. I think I'm being generous there. But along with solving these problems, these really important problems, the problem of transportation, the problem of food, the problem of housing, the problem of clothing, all of which is solved by fossil fuel industry, solved by burning certain fossil fuels, of burning oil, of burning coal, of creating things out of that oil. Yes, we create some other problems, which are better problems. Okay, We've got a little bit of pollution to deal with, perhaps. Okay? I don't like breathing in grimy air. So we've got that problem. Let's try and get that grime, that, those nasty nitrous oxides and sulfur dioxides out of the air. Great. And make the air look nice and clean. Take the carbon dioxide out too if you want. Plant more trees. Get some more carbon-eating bacteria. Do some carbon sequestration if you want to do that. Great. That is a minor problem in the scheme of things. In the great scheme of things. We keep being told that the, the great catastrophe is coming. The great catastrophe has already been avoided to a large extent. 
the great catastrophe of the past of people of people literally starving to death and freezing to death because there wasn't enough food, there wasn't enough shelter, there wasn't enough clothing, there wasn't enough wealth to, to, to change their situation. Okay, let's keep on going. And they write, the global material footprint has grown in lockstep with the exponentially rising global economy since the Industrial Revolution. Okay, so that's a good thing. I don't know if they think it's a good thing, but isn't it wonderful that the, that the global economy has risen exponentially? This is largely because of egregious consumption, egregious, egregious consumption by the super affluent in a socioeconomic system founded on growth without limits. Well, here we go. We're, we're getting a tell here. They're automatically, they're having a go at the rich. That's who they come for, coming for the rich. Um, the uh, socioeconomic system. So they want to get rid of the socioeconomic system. What? Socioeconomic capitalism, of course. What do they want instead? They want communism. Okay, they might not say it out loud. It's a dirty word. But that's what they want. That's what they're going to be arguing for. They go on to say, can we resolve this fundamental conflict between the quest for limitless growth and the consequent environmental destruction? Okay. The environment is the universe. Okay, let's just get that straight. The environment is not merely the forest in the Amazon, which is what people think of, or the oceans, or the air. The environment is the universe. It is limitless. Okay, as far as the cosmologists know and the astrophysicists know, it's limitless. There's no bound to it. And we can just keep spreading out. And insofar as it's not limitless, it's effectively so. People a trillion years hence might have to worry about some of the absolute limits of what physics tells us that the universe is going to be like once it expands to a certain size, we don't need to worry about it right now. Let them. They'll create the knowledge of what to do then. But for now, we have the ability to create limitless growth. And one reason is because we have limitless resources. Why? Because a resource isn't a resource until you have the knowledge of how to exploit it. Lots of examples of this exist. The one that I've used before is pitchblend. Pitchblend is the name of a rock. It's an ore that exists in various places around the world, in particular in the Northern Territory of Australia. For millennia, that rock sat in the ground completely inert, doing nothing for anybody ever. Then physicists of the 20th century figured out atomic physics, nuclear physics, they figured out that uranium could be used in order to generate heat inside of nuclear reactors. And so they created nuclear reactors which used exploited uranium. Where do you find uranium? In pitch blend, among other places. Cool. Now, that pitch blend, which was hitherto useless, it wasn't a resource previously. It wasn't a resource because no one knew how to use it. Only after, only after nuclear physics. Were we able to exploit that? Were we able to extract the uranium out of that ore and then actually turn it into something useful? A resource is only a resource in the context of knowledge which allows you to know that it's a resource. How many other bits of the earth, otherwise useless at the moment, will become resources in the future because some smart person figures out how to use it? Much less the rest of the solar system and galaxy and universe substances out there that, that if we can po properly exploit them, make the world better for millions, billions, and eventually trillions more people. This is what we should want. This is what we should want to do. Of course, in the future, what we'll have is this thing called the universal constructor, which will be able to take any atoms at all that you like, as long as you've got the elements there, and just rearrange them into whatever product you want, Okay, perhaps an interstellar spaceship. Let's keep going. Enter technology. Technological innovation and efficiency improvements are often cited as pathways to decouple growth in material use from economic growth. While technology undoubtedly has a crucial role to play in the transition to a sustainable world, it is constrained by fundamental physical principles and pragmatic economic considerations. Okay, what do they mean by a transition to a sustainable world? A world that remains the same year after year after year? I don't think they think it through. I don't think anyone really thinks this through that talks about sustainability. The world is not going to sit there for you remaining the same over time. That's not sustainable. It's not sustainable for us. As I say, not only is the asteroid coming eventually, 
and we better want to have the knowledge in time to deflect it, we probably already do. But although some people keep on arguing against rich people like Elon Musk having the technology, having the wealth to actually be able to do something like deflect an asteroid if it was on a collision course with the Earth. But forget asteroids. We just got through an 18-month-long pandemic, which really was a minor pandemic. Could you imagine if something was far worse than COVID-19, far more contagious, far more deadly? Would we have the wealth and the knowledge to be able to deal with that crisis? We've already spent spent so much wealth already on a, a relatively minor crisis. So imagine a worse virus. Imagine something that's not a virus, something that attacks the human body that we hitherto had no knowledge of whatsoever. You know, these things have arisen. Prions are one, you know, over the years. Who knows what might appear in the future? Well, the equivalent of an asteroid. What if, what if it wasn't an asteroid? What if it was a stray planet? Um, uh, uh, astronomers have talked about this, that the, that the stray planets might actually outnumber the planets that orbit around stars for various reasons. Or just other things that go flying through the cosmos. Or, or just the unknown. How do we prepare for the unknown? We have to create knowledge faster. How do we create knowledge faster? By investing in research. Okay, and this isn't just research funded by the government. It's funded by private enterprise, creating new technologies. How can they do this as fast as possible? Having cheap energy, cheap fuel in order to power the computers of the future. Wealth so that people have the time to be creative. Wealth so that we can automate almost everything that hitherto isn't automated aside from the creative output of people's brains. People assembling things in factories should be thinking creatively. They should be doing something else. Everyone driving a vehicle for a job should be free instead to be able to do something creative. And I think they all can. Forget about what the pessimists say out there. People who think that not everyone can be creative. Not everyone can be intelligent. Not everyone can be a problem. Rubbish. Everyone can and would love to be. Would absolutely love to be. Do you think a truck driver would not prefer to be doing something else? They would. Do you think that someone who's assembling something on an assembly line in a factory wouldn't prefer to be doing something creative, artistic, intellectual? They would. It is a strange ivory tower, disconnected way of viewing people. I don't know if these people don't actually ever talk to people who are involved in these jobs, who talk to checkout cashiers, who talk to people in mundane jobs that could be automated. They don't want to be doing those things. They'd rather be doing something else. In an extremely wealthy future, they will. A future where they're allowed to exploit their creativity, a future where their creativity can help solve their own problems in their own life and the problems for the rest of us as well about how to exploit resources, about how to expand out beyond this planet because we have to. It's not sustainable living on this planet. It's not sustainable at all. Not only for us, for the rest of the animals and plants that you might care about. If you care about panda bears, then perhaps in the future we can move the panda bears somewhere else where it is sustainable to another planet, okay? This is off into the distant future, obviously. But we know it's not sustainable to remain here. Scientifically, it's not sustainable. If we keep things the same here, the sun will heat up, it will expand, it will engulf the earth. That'll be the end of us. We know that's coming. And that is just one thing that we know about happening. We can almost guarantee there will be something unknown, something we cannot predict, that will come from the clear blue sky. We need to have a stance of knowledge, production, and creation. We need to be able to exploit the resources as fast as possible. The only thing that's sustainable, the only thing that's sustainable is creating knowledge faster and faster, which requires energy. You need energy to power knowledge production. Let's keep on going. Examples abound. The energy efficiency of airplanes has improved little for decades since they have been operating close to the theoretical peak efficiency. Likewise, there's a hard limit on the efficiency of photovoltaic cells, about 35%, because of the physical properties of semiconductors that constitute them. In practice, few exceed 20% for economic and pragmatic reasons. The power generation of large wind farms is limited to, to about one watt per square meter as a simple yet unavoidable physical consequence of wake effects. The awesome exponential increase in computing power of the past five decades will end by about 2025, since it is physically impossible to track transistors on the computer chip already, you're roughly 5% of the size of coronavirus. Much smaller. Okay. <laughs> Few errors in here. Okay. Well, firstly, yes, absolutely. This is an interesting thing about thermodynamics, by the way. Uh, people might think, you know, uh, recently considering, you know, um, combustion engines, this is something that you learn about when you do a physics degree. 
whatever the case. The interesting thing is you can't make a combustion engine, you can't make any engine perfectly 100% efficient. Indeed, indeed, the um, best that you can hope for, as they say there, for um, for combustion engines, uh, uh, yeah, well, I think it's about 40%, something like that. And this is thermodynamics, okay? So yes, but what's the big deal? Who care? What, what do they... What do they What's the concern here that physics is somehow got it in for us that because you're not allowed to have a more efficient device, that thermodynamics puts a hard limit on these things, that somehow or other this is a reason to perhaps stop building so many engines? As for this thing about um, uh, the end of Moore's Law, well, yeah, you can't put more transistors on a computer than... Uh, well, once the transistors get down to you know the size of an atom, literally, once you've got transistors the size of an atom, then you've got a problem. If you're going to go through classical computation, unless of course you increase the number of processors. Okay, Moore's law hasn't been deviated from that much. If you just consider the overall power of the computer, perhaps if you just consider the speed of the processor, that's all a moot point. We have a theory of quantum computation. We already have an avenue to, we have a vision for computers that are vastly more powerful than any computer that exists now. So this pessimism is undermined by David Deutsch's proof of the theoretical possibility of practically building quantum computers. Okay, we just have to get through the engineering difficulties. Of course, if these people have their way, then um, powering the research of the future, perhaps Quantum computers might be very energy intensive. Goodness knows what will happen then. We'll have people protesting about the building of quantum computers. The very thing that might solve the problems of the future might be protested away because people are more concerned that everyone has exactly the same access to all the resources in the world. Let's keep going. Whether it is principles of classical quantum or solid state physics or thermodynamics, each places different but inexorable constraints on technological solutions. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I mean, yes, there are things that are physically possible and things that are physically impossible. You can't make physically impossible technology. Big deal. Big deal. That has no bearing whatsoever on our ability to solve problems and make progress off into the infinite future. You can't build a rocket that goes faster than the speed of light. But does that mean you can't get anywhere in the galaxy? No. In your rest frame, okay, you, if you travel close to the speed of light, you can get almost anywhere instantly. Of course, everyone else will see you take, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to get from here to there. That's relativity. Point is, it doesn't really place inexorable constraints on technological solutions. A solution is only a solution if it's physically possible. So forget that. Let's keep going. Basically, physical principles that have allowed incredible technological leaps over the past century also inevitably limit them. We might consider that extensive recycling of materials would offset efficiency limits. Recycling is crucial. No, it's not. However, while glass and metals can be recycled almost indefinitely without loss of quality, materials such as paper and plastic can be recycled only a few more times before becoming too degraded. Okay, just on this point about recycling. Recycling... People, people are overly concerned about waste. waste the, the idea, more waste is a sign of a healthy society. Now, we don't want to be living in a polluted city. We want the waste a long way away from us, buried in the ground or otherwise available for recycling. It won't be far into the future. All of this will become oh, hope, okay? So long as these people don't get their way. A century from now, once again, if we have universal 3D printers, okay, universal constructors of a kind, then they will be able to assemble technology of any kind that you can come up with a program for the object to make, including other universal constructors. So the universal constructor will be something like a 3D printer that will be able to build any device that you like. So long as you've got a program for it, you can program the computer to get the universal constructor to build the device, okay? The universal constructor presumably is some kind of robot which is assembling things uh, on a microscopic scale, nanoscale, perhaps atom by atom. It can assemble something like a computer or a quantum computer or a car or a rocket, whatever. 
Now, when that thing comes to the end of its natural life because physics causes things to de degrade, unless, of course, you have universal constructors within those things, constantly repairing them so they never actually need to be thrown away. But let's say they didn't need to be thrown away. Then the universal constructor could be a universal destructor and just change all of that stuff back into the fundamental elements out of which it was made in the first place. And presumably, these universal constructors of the future, which are physically possible, which will happen at some point, perhaps you don't even need a universal such thing, then we could use these things in our rubbish tips, our garbage dumps uh, that we have today that would otherwise be causing pollution of groundwater or something, whatever your environmental concern you have, and change them back into harmless materials that aren't pollutants. This can all be fixed with technology of the future. There are some problems now. They need solutions. The solution is not, let's complain about technology and slow down the rate of progress. That is not the lesson here. Let's keep going. Additionally, recycling itself may be an energy and materials intensive process. Even if physical laws could be broken, they cannot. To achieve recycling with 100% efficiency, added demand from the imperative for economic growth would necessarily require virgin materials. The key point is that efficiency is limited by physics, but there is no sufficiency limit on the, so on the socioeconomic construct of demand. Okay, maybe these people are actually on my side, you know, arguing against <laughs> recycling. I don't have anything against recycling. If people want to do recycling and make money out of recycling, that's great. My concern is that quite often higher quality and cheaper products can be made from raw materials without having to worry about recycling them. Let's keep going. Unfortunately, the situation is even more dire. Economic growth is required to be exponential. That is, the size of the economy must double in a fixed period. As referenced earlier, this has driven a corresponding increase in the material footprint. To understand the nature of exponential growth, consider the EV. Suppose that we have enough easily extractable lithium for the batteries needed to fuel the EV revolution for another 30 years. Now assume that deep sea mining provides four times the current amount of these minerals. Materials. Are we covered for 120 years? No, because the current 10% growth rate in demand for lithium is equivalent to doubling demand every seven years, which means we would only have enough for 44 years. In effect, we could, we would cause untold, perhaps irreversible devastation of marine ecosystems to buy ourselves a few extra years supply of raw materials. Okay, this is nothing but Malthus's error applied to lithium. That's all that is. You know, these people who've argued for centuries that, for example, it is clear, and we can do the mathematics, let me show you the finite space of land available on planet Earth for growing crops, for growing food, is fixed. It's fixed. There's a certain amount of arable land, and that's it. That's that. But the population of the Earth is increasing exponentially. Therefore, there must come a time when we will run out of arable land. Therefore, we'll run out of food. The population will outstrip the food supply. This has always been wrong. The reason it's been wrong is because knowledge changes the calculus. We learn better ways about how to more efficiently produce food, more food on smaller patches of land. In particular, we can do vertical farming. That's just one solution. Now, in this case, electric vehicles, lithium. We don't know if we can't make more and more efficient electric vehicles via different processes that these people haven't thought of before. Or that lithium can't be found in various places that we didn't know of before. We're not going to run out of lithium anytime soon. And even if we did, there's no physical theory that can put a barrier on us producing batteries that are even better than the lithium ones we have today, made of different materials. Who knows what? These people don't. I don't. Point is, you can't prophesy, you cannot predict the content of future knowledge. But this is, this is what sustainability is. It's a fixed mindset. It's thinking that the technology available today is the only technology that's ever going to be available. The knowledge available today is the only knowledge that's ever going to be available. It's a very parochial way of thinking that the last 10 years of your personal career, your expert personal career, which includes reading articles from the Scientific American, is the entire corpus of human knowledge. That's where it started and that's where it finished. As if there was no history of progress before that. And there'll be no history of progress after this as well. Of course, problems will continue to be solved. Okay, let's keep going. Exponential growth swiftly inevitably swamps anything in finite supply for a virus that finite resources the human population in the context of the planet. It is its physical resource. Okay, again, Malthus again. Nothing but Malthus. Okay, uh, this idea of finite supply, finite supply, if only nothing about our knowledge changes about how to use that particular resource. How long will the coal last on planet Earth? We've had predictions for decades now about how it's going to run out at some point in the future. 
But the thing is, the amount that we're using seems to be, although in some senses increasing, in other senses decreasing because people are transitioning away from it. So won't the coal last possibly forever if we all transition away from it? So how was that a prediction in the first place that was going to run out at some point in the future? Same is true for oil. Same is true for every single resource. We tend to move from one resource to another. Not necessarily because some scientist comes along and says it's going to run out, but because we find something better, something more efficient to use. In the case of coal, a lot of people are now using natural gas. We don't need to get into the debates about it, but the point is that people find other resources. A good reason to change from one resource to another is because it's more efficient and cheaper to use that other resource. But right now, the Marxist, communist, collectivist, socialists of the world want us to artificially move from one to another. Why? Not because that other resource is better, but because they want to slow down progress. They want to impose regulations on people. Why? Because they're fixated on control. And one way of being fixated on control is through the lens, through the, 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 the mechanism of environmentalism. Environmentalism is a great way of being able to say, the catastrophe is coming, we need control right now, you all need to do what you're told, otherwise the world is going to end. Move from this resource to that resource. They remain in charge, telling you that they're looking after your best interests. They're not. They're putting artificial dampeners on growth and wealth creation. Let's keep going. The inescapable inference is that it is essentially impossible to decouple material use from economic growth, and that is exactly what has transpired. Weedman et al. 2015 did a careful accounting of the material footprint, including those embedded in international trade for several nations. In the 1990 to 2008 period covered by the study, no country achieved a planned, deliberate, economy-wide decoupling for a sustained length of time. Claims by the Global North to the contrary conceal the substantial offshoring of its production and the associated ecological devastation to the Global South. Everyone has been getting richer. Everyone on planet Earth has been getting richer over time. The number of people starving today are far, far fewer than have ever been before. People in the most destitute, poorest nations of the world, people with whom you would not wish to swap places, have smartphones. They have access to information like never before because People have used resources, rare earth minerals and lots of energy, in order to create the technology that gives them access to all of this knowledge, that enables them to improve themselves, and potentially to make it into the West, to make it into the United States, to Canada, to Great Britain, throughout Europe, to Australia, to various other places where they can improve their lot. It's only, only by this economic progress that we can hope that improvements will continue, that progress will continue. The ecology, the ecological argument, the ecology, the forests of the world have never been in a better position. They've never been in a better position. They are being protected from natural wildfires more than they ever have because people are putting them out. And insofar as we are destroying some for farmland, the amount of farmland over time that needs to be created is decreasing. As I said, knowledge makes it more economical to create more food out of a smaller and smaller area and support more and more people. Okay, I'm skipping a paragraph and then they say, what is sustainability? These observations lead us to a natural minimum condition for sustainability. All resource use curves must be simultaneously flatlined and all pollution curves simultaneously extinguished. It is this resource perspective that allows us to see why EVs may help offset carbon emissions yet remain utterly unsustainable under the limitless growth growth paradigm okay well that whatever that's nonsense I, I don't understand what this that's not an answer to what sustainability is this idea that all pollution curves must be simultaneously extinct we have to get rid of all pollution but well, i thought these people were physicists okay this this is a, almost a consequence of the second law of thermodynamics no process can be perfectly efficient there's going to be waste even in the form of heat is heat not a form of pollution? Are we artificially heating the planet? Is that what, isn't that what they're concerned about? So we need you existing causes um, pollution. As for all resource curves must be simultaneously flatlined. No, no. You try and use only the same amount of resources over time, then that means that you're not improving. You're literally flatlining. You're not creating anything new, which includes knowledge, by the way. Okay, you're going to just have this. We can't remain in stasis. 
Stasis means you're going to go backwards because you're going to encounter a problem that you haven't encountered before and you won't be able to solve it because you won't have enough wealth, technology or knowledge in order to do so. The only way to prepare for the unknown future is to continually, rapidly create more knowledge and that requires more technology and that requires more wealth and that requires the use of more resources and that requires more energy. This is not some crazy theory. This is simple logic. It's simple logic. The knowledge economy is fueled by fuel, by energy. First law of thermodynamics. First law of thermodynamics. Can't get out more energy than what we put in. Okay, let's keep going. The real question this is titled. We have argued that the inextricable link between material consumption and GDP makes the infinite growth paradigm incompatible with sustaining ecological integrity. Forget the science and the arguments. The English is just terrible. Okay. Thus, while EVs constitute a partial answer to the climate question within the current paradigm, they will only exacerbate the larger anthropocentric crises connected to unsustainable resource consumption. It's not unsustainable. The only thing that's unsustainable is not consuming resources. To reduce the, the consumption of resources, that's unsustainable. That really is unsustainable. That means that human civilization will go backwards. That means we'll be unable to deal with the problems of tomorrow. We won't have the technology. We won't have the power, the wealth, in order to solve the problems of tomorrow. The infinite growth paradigm is just... Okay, let's, let's put it into more simple terms. The infinite growth paradigm simply means unbounded progress. That's what that means. We just need to keep on solving the problems of the future. And in order to do that, we have to keep on growing. It's the only option. If we are to shrink in number as people, the number of creative entities that exist on this planet will decrease. The number of solutions, therefore, that we're going to be able to produce, because each person only has a finite amount of creative output that they can have, that they can produce, is going to reduce in lockstep with that. We need to increase the population. We need to increase the amount of resources that we're using. We need to increase the amount of energy that we're using overall. We can be more efficient about it over time, but we want to spread out from this planet, as I keep on saying. Now, this might not need to happen for millennia hence, but if people succeed at this argument now, there will be no people millennia hence. We will have gone extinct. If I seem passionate, it's because this is the argument of our age. If these people win because they've come close before, don't mistake it. These people came close in the Second World War to winning the argument. These people have come close again and again and again. It's all the same. It's tribal, collective, tyrannical. Okay, the ancient tribes that wandered the African wilderness, tribal, replaced by a feudal system, a collective idea where there was one person at the top and everyone else was more or less equal beneath them. Okay, we had some barons, we had some ranks, but the overwhelming majority of people were serfs. And then we had the idea of codifying this kind of idea in Marxist ideas, okay, where, where, where we needed a central committee, we need some sort of central committee that is in charge, and then everyone else is completely equal. These are all basically logically equivalent. A couple of people at the top, and everyone else, the, the chiefs, the kings, or the commissars, and everyone else equal beneath them. We, we can't go back to this. This has been the, to the ruination of civilizations prior to this one. It's a shame that many of us have to devote our intellectual efforts to defending a thesis which is so obviously correct against some that is so obviously false. Wars have been fought and won for civilization, for progress, for peace, prosperity, wealth, and technological improvement. That's in part what the Second World War was about, among other things. Among other things. Those people uh, we were fighting against wanted stasis. These people want stasis. They don't call it stasis. They call it sustainability now. But it's the same idea. They want things to remain the same. They want everyone to be the same, to be equal. Forced equality. Okay, let's keep going. We'll go past their graphs. <laughs> their Malthusian graphs. Okay. Unsustainable resource use going up there. Why? Why can't we just keep doing We're not staying on planet Earth. 
Okay, and by the way, the amount of planet Earth that currently we occupy is such a tiny fraction of a percentage. Get in an airplane sometime and have a look out the window and you'll see that cities are tiny specks on this the face of this planet. So much of it is just uninhabited and unused, by the way. There's so many resources yet to be used. Pollution over time. Oh, that's scary, isn't it? Yeah. Um, resource use. That's sustainable pollution decreasing to zero. Well, look, no one complains about pollution going down. Sure, let's have the pollution going down. No problem. But of course, once we get rid of one kind of pollution, there'll be another kind of pollution that people complain about. You know, the, in the Industrial Revolution, air quality was so much worse in London than what it is today. And yet we're producing more than ever. So we've, we've gone from one kind of pollution to another kind of pollution. The invisible sort of pollution isn't that better. Okay, and maybe we'll get rid of that as well and then we'll have a different kind of pollution. People won't stop complaining, of course. Whatever the next kind of pollution is, they'll, they'll, they'll keep on complaining about it. Oh, I've come to the end of the article, but I need to go back. There's just this one. We, we, we forgot to click on this. The real question is, how do we transition to alternative economic paradigm? So that, that, that's really what we're getting at here. This Scientific American, the scientist from the Scientific American, which I would say is not scientific. None of this has been scientific. None of it. It has all been an economic appeal for stasis, for not solving problems, for going backwards, and in fact attacking their own kind, attacking other environmentalists for not being pure enough in some way, that, we, that, that, that none of this is good enough. That's basically what we're saying here, isn't it? What we're saying is that your electric vehicles and your recycling and all that great environmental stuff that you do, it's not enough. You know what you need? Let's click here. What you need is to be against affluence. That's what you need. Scientists warning on affluence. We need to be against rich people. We've heard that before, haven't we? Often the first to go. We know who comes next. We know who is also in that um, group. But let's not hide it. Okay, They're coming for affluence. They're coming for wealth. They're coming for rich people. These are the, these are the people that have always started the wars. These are the people that have demanded... That, that, that things be confiscated from those who have. They don't understand economics. These people are utterly economic illiterate. Okay, the previous article from the Scientific American, it just reeks with complete ignorance of, of, of any aspect of how the economy might run, of how progress works. I want to say to them, keep your beak out of other people's business. It's like people who argue about well, there was this. There was. There was like this very recently. This complaint. I think it was, was it on the BBC or something. This whole thing about Amazon produces too much waste. I think it was in America actually. The Amazon, Amazon, the company, the corporation destroys too many products. As people chiming in saying, "This is terrible. This is off. What's it got to do with anyone? It's Amazon's property. They can do with it what they like." It's logically equivalent to the grocery store, your local grocery store, throwing out the unwanted produce at the end of the day that, that, that otherwise is going to go off by tomorrow. People say, why don't they give it away? They don't give it away because they want people to buy it tomorrow. Okay? It is the sign of a healthy society that they've got too much. And so it gets thrown out. It gets thrown into the bin. You go, well, why don't they do this? Why, don't they? Well, why doesn't the local kebab shop, as I argued, just give away the kebabs at the end of the night that they otherwise would have uh, because they, they can't because the local kebab shop doesn't know precisely precisely you know down to the final kebab exactly how much tomato and lettuce and lamb and bread that they need uh, for each and every day so they buy a little bit more than what they need and throw away some at the end of the day why don't they just give it they don't give it away because eventually the people in the community will realize well they're just giving kebabs away at the end of the day let's just wait until the end of the day and we'll get a free one we won't buy one that would be a terrible business model. No, so they purchase a little bit more than what they need and make just the right amount of profit. Usually just a tiny amount of profit, by the way. And this, this is true for almost every single business. Their profit margins are extremely tiny. Now, as a proportion, I mean, as a proportion of the total revenue. Okay, so the, the local kebab shop takes in, in one day, $2,000. But their costs, electricity, labor, food, might be... 1,900. They've got this tiny profit margin, $100 for the owner to go home with and pay his own personal bills with, something like that. And maybe the local grocery store, it's a bit more than that. Maybe Amazon, it's a bit more than that again, okay? They seem to have high profits. But as an overall proportion of the revenue, not that great. 
Although with Amazon, of course, they've got lots and lots of smart people, lots and lots of technology trying to refine precisely how much they need. But again, they can't predict perfectly, perfectly how much of any particular good they need to produce or to buy. So sometimes they need to destroy some. They can't get it exactly right. They don't want to go under. They don't want to produce insufficient amounts because they're not making as much money as they otherwise would have. But they can't get it exactly right. So some stuff needs to be destroyed. Whatever the case, I'm not going to get involved in discussions with the local kebab store owner about why they're throwing out a couple of tomatoes at the end of the evening. Nor my local supermarket about why they're throwing out food either. I don't know. I don't have the relevant knowledge. That's the whole point. You need to have knowledge in that particular area. This is an area of expertise. The finance is an area of expertise. Economics is an area of expertise. Running a kebab shop is an area of expertise. Running Amazon is an area of expertise. Why people in the general public feel like they have to insert their opinion into how these businesses should run, I don't know. It is precisely equivalent to contacting the local urologist and asking them why the number of syringes in their bin happens to be the number that it is. Or the number of tissues, dirty tissues, happens to be what it is. You don't know. You've got no clue about what goes on inside that urological surgery. The urologist does. The nurses do. They're the relevant experts. Anyway, I'm not going to read through this entire thing, but just to make us aware that, that nature, this is one of the most prestigious scientific journals on the planet, is producing articles which are op-eds. These are op-eds, okay? It's, to be fair, okay, it's called Perspective. But why? Why, why, are we, why have we got an opinion piece on economics? These people don't know economics. Abstract. For over half a century, worldwide growth and affluence has continuously increased resource use. Well, firstly, isn't that a wonderful thing? Worldwide growth and affluence. That's great. And by the way, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. Yes, some people have gotten more wealthy than others. What's the alternative to that? Not everyone can get equally, but we won't go down that road, okay? I've got my cosmological economics. Have a look at that one. It's not bad that there is inequality in the world. It simply isn't bad. We can imagine situations where the inequality gets way worse. We can imagine a world where the richest people on the planet, well, actually, no, on the planet, in the galaxy, richest people in the galaxy own entire planets. They have 10 to the power of $50. And the poorest people, the poorest people only own... Uh, entire islands on those planets and they're merely trillionaires and they, and they sail around those planets uh, on their on their expensive yachts we can imagine a, a situation like that worse inequality but everyone's better no one dies of disease and catastrophe and whatever we, we're just solving our interesting creative better problems of the future so inequality is not a bad thing anyway and affluence is certainly not a bad thing it's it's the very thing that enables people to solve problems is wealth. Another word, affluence. Okay. Affluence has continually increased resource use and pollutant emissions far more rapidly than have been reduced through better technology. What? We've increased pollutant. Well, well in, to some extent, yeah, but not really. Like, I mean, again, the Industrial Revolution in London, the, the, the air quality was way, way, way worse. But now there are more people who are richer. So I guess overall in the entire globe, there's been multiple industrial revolutions and there continue to be these technological revolutions which are creating a, a little bit of pollution. But the pollution, well, the pollution isn't that bad. Let's just face it. It's not like, well, there are places in China, I, I know, okay, and there are places in Africa which haven't got to the level of technology that we have. But if we can get them there, then their skies will be clear as well. They'll have clean air as well. And then everyone can just worry about the invisible carbon dioxide and the effects of that. Okay, fine. We can extract the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere if that's what people are worried about. We can get carbon sequestration going. We can get more plants and so on and so forth. Okay, let's just read the rest of this abstract. We're definitely not going to read the entire thing. The affluent citizens of the world are responsible for most environmental impacts and are central to any future prospect of retreating to safer environmental conditions. We summarize the evidence and present possible solution approaches. Marxism. Any transition towards sustainability can only be effective if far-reaching lifestyle changes, authoritarianism, tyranny, okay, they're going to tell you what to do, complement technological advancements. In other words, yeah, technology is not good enough. We need to control you. We need to be the authorities to take away some of your wealth and to regulate what you're going to do with your life. Okay, we're going to tell you what to do moment to moment. 
However, existing societies, economies, and cultures incite consumption expansion, and the structural imperative for growth in competitive market economies inhibits necessary societal change. Necessary societal change. The, the, the great fear with these people is, of course, they think they know what's best for everyone, for the entire world, and they they rely on the authority, the, the purported, the supposed authority of science in order to do this. They write in journals like Nature. They say, we are scientists. We are warning you. Recent scientists warning, says the introduction. Scientists are just people. And as we can see, often, completely and utterly, historically illiterate, economically illiterate. Yes, physicists are some of the smartest people in the world. But many of them, not all, many of them should stick to physics. Okay, just as, you know, you're on Brooks, someone I love, stick to finance. Whenever he comments on physics, he gets it wrong. And I sort of mentally switch off. You don't know what you're talking about, but it's fine. And I think that sometimes, if you don't take an interest in a certain subject, try not to opine on it. I take a casual interest in, a, in, the, in the economy and finance because I listen to Euron Brook, amongst other things, and I read Thomas Sowell and I read various other books. But I'm not going to insert myself in a debate about who was the worst of the Roman emperors. Not my area of expertise. I imagine that there's actually a good debate to be had there. I am not a historian. There are areas of expertise. But why certain people think that they should write long <laughs> long pieces about things they clearly don't know about? I don't know. Let's just skip all the argument and skip to the conclusion because you know this has gone on this rant has gone on for long enough. Um, Super affluent. So they're very, very worried about the rich. This is the, the politics of envy, of course. Politics of envy. Everyone can become affluent. Everyone can. Okay? Uh, Post-capitalist economy. In other words, socialism. It's been tried before. Capitalism is the new thing. Can we just say that? It's the new theory. Marxism, communism, socialism, they're all just versions of tribalism, collectivism. Okay, which has been tried before. It was tried on the African savannah. It was tried in medieval Europe with the king at the top, okay, and basically just making sure that everyone beneath him got an equal amount, more or less. Okay, His family and the barons might have got a little bit more. But basically, the overwhelming majority of people got the same. Okay, Just the same way that in North Korea now. The same way as in China to a lesser extent. But still, there is a ruling class and then there's everyone else is equal. Okay. Do we want everyone else to be? No, we don't want everyone else equal. We want this new idea. The new idea is everyone gets to pursue their own happiness and their own wealth to the extent that they want to and can, and to the extent that they're willing to work hard, work late hours, be creative, do stuff that they want. Okay, And if they don't want to, then they don't get rewarded. This is the, it's simply a, the reality of the world. And at this point, I have to say, because I did not grow up in a wealthy family. I did not. Okay, I got through university myself by working hard myself to pay my way through university. Okay, I worked hard to do that. It's terrible that I have to say that, but of course, people come at you <laughs> when you declare these kind of things. When you, when, you, when, you, when you say things like this, when you say that what it takes is hard. It, it is. What it takes is hard work and creativity. But that is what it takes. That is what it takes. The only alternative is to rely on others. Yeah, that's the only other alternative. Okay, we don't really have a section called conclusion here. It says research on governance. How to make the world a better place according to nature. Replace GDP as a measure of prosperity. Okay, who cares about that? Empower people and strengthen participation in democratic processes. Stronger local governance. I don't mind stronger local governance. Yeah, take, take away the, the power from the you know, centralised national governments. Happy with that. Design governance institutions to allow for social experiments, engagement and innovation. Sounds all nice. This could be trialled through organised or through citizen assemblies or juries. How about we just stick with democracy, an easy way of removing the rulers and policies that we don't like? As is demanded by Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion, oh my goodness. These are these uh, environmental terrorists. Right? And already <laughs> practised by transition initiative. Okay, so they've gone off that. So... Uh, it seems like what they're arguing for there is not really democracy, not really um, more democratic processes, but entrenching certain leaders and certain ideas such that they cannot possibly be removed. Citizen assemblies or juries. 
And whenever you hear something like that, you hear people who haven't been elected and therefore cannot be removed by election. Next. Third, strengthen equality and redistribution Aha, through suitable taxation policies. Okay, we need more tax. Basic income. Okay, yes. Uh, universal basic income. And job guarantees. In other words, job guarantees. All right, so you get a guaranteed job. Even if you're not willing to do anything, guaranteed job. So even if you don't work hard, guaranteed job. You can sit there on your butt, not do anything, but your job is guaranteed. Therefore, your income is guaranteed. You don't have to try hard. This is what happens in North Korea, by the way. It's what always happens. The people have no motivation to do anything because they know that the harder they work, they're not going to get rewarded anymore. They get rewarded exactly the same as the guy sitting next to them who's not trying hard. They think that everyone's going to try hard in such an economy. They're not. They're not. Why would they? They're not going to get any more reward. Expanding public services. Okay, this is all socialist. Rolling back neoliberal reforms, e.g. as part of a Green New Deal. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Stronger regulation might be needed. Okay, to ban certain products of ecologically destructive industries. Okay, so it's just all authoritarianism under the guise of environmentalism uh, to take away people's wealth, prosperity, um, uh, motivation to work, motivation to be creative. Fourth, the transformation of economic systems can be supported with innovative business models no, it can't be. Those two things don't work together. You're not going to get an innovative business with a job guarantee. Encourage sharing and giving economies based on cooperation, communities and localised economy. What is it? It's like it's written by, I'm sorry, but, you know, a, a, a group of first-year university students. And finally, capacity building, knowledge transfer and education, including media and advertising to support local sufficient... Okay. It's, it makes one quite emotional, actually, to read this. It's just so sad that, that the great institutions, great journals like Nature, uh, magazines like the, the, the Scientific American, are going down this road. This is what people are reading. Uh, when I was growing up, I don't know that this was in the Scientific American or Nature. They weren't focused on economics. Why? 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 Well, I kind of know. I mean, uh, I, I pay attention to what's said in the, the physics community. And I want to pick on the physics community, the astrophysics community. I talk to some of these people. They're Marxists. They're, they're socialists. They, 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 they love socialist policy. And one of the reasons is, I guess, um, governments fund their research. So they need to be very, very pro-government. They need to be very, very pro the idea that everyone else will support them. The scientists. So scientists, certain scientists have a vested interest in this. This is why we need, desperately need, new funding models for science. We need something away from the universities, away from the traditional way of government funding this stuff. Because so long as the, the scientists keep getting government funding, or almost all their funding comes from government, they're going to write articles like this. They're going to try and encourage everyone else to try and, let's face it, indoctrinate everyone else with propaganda so that they can continue to get money via this route, via arguing that the catastrophe is coming, the looming catastrophe is coming, number one. The only people that can save you from the looming catastrophe are the scientists. So you better give them more money. You better make society more egalitarian. We need scientists. We need scientists to be working on creative stuff, creative fundamental things. And it's time that we started to really question the people who are arguing for tired old ideas like socialism. I'm not going to change the podcast into being ranty about socialism and environmentalism, but one gets completely fed up with reading this sort of nonsense from what is supposed to be one of the most reputable scientific magazines in the world and one of the most reputable scientific journals in the world. It's disgraceful. So that's that. If you enjoyed this and you would like to support me, you can find me on Patreon at TalkCast or go to my website, www.bretthall.org and click on Donate. Thank you so much.